What's better than one oncologist? Two. What's better than one oncologist? Two. What is better than one oncologist? Two. Hi, I'm Dr. Finifolu Balogun. Hi, I'm Dr. Oninye Balogun. We are the, the Onc Docs. Cancer is rising worldwide, and it's nearly impossible to find someone who has not been affected by this disease. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the stories of those affected by cancer and educating the general public about this disease. In this episode of the OncDocs, we speak with Marissa Renee Lee. Marissa served as a caretaker for her mother, Lisa, who had multiple sclerosis and unfortunately died from breast cancer in 2008. Marissa has also battled infertility and pregnancy loss, and these experiences have taught her that grief is really just another form of love. Her writing has been featured in Glamour, CNN, Refinery29, and a host of other outlets. In this episode, we speak with Marissa about her experience with her mother and how it has informed her book, Grief is Love. Before we begin this episode, we want to caution you that it does contain some cursing. It also contains content that may be emotionally heavy for some of our listeners. My name is Marissa Renee Lee, and I'm the author of Grief is Love. My mom was first diagnosed with breast cancer the week that I was graduating from college. Growing up, she had multiple sclerosis and had been sick in some capacity since I was 13 years old. And then my senior year in college, she was very, very sick, regularly in and out of the hospital, constantly going to the doctors, having tests run. She complained of you know, really bad pain in her chest and her back. No one could figure it out. My, uh, my grandmother had actually passed away swiftly and unexpectedly that year. And doctors told her that they thought that she was depressed um, and that that was what was causing pain. And while I am definitely someone who believes that um, emotional situations that are really challenging can absolutely have physical manifestations, you know, I knew that something else was going on with my mom. My mom knew that something else was going on with her. And ultimately, it took a visit to an orthopedic doctor who was a family friend. I grew up with his daughter, and he promised my parents he was going to figure out what was going on. So he ran his own battery of tests. And, you know, I will never forget, it was senior week at Harvard, you know, just getting ready to graduate. I was walking past Hillis Library in the quad and my mom called and she finally had some initial test results. And she said, they don't know exactly what's going on yet, but they found lesions on my spine. And I remember when she said that, I immediately, you know, even at 22 years old, not really knowing anything about anything, I knew that was not a good thing. And so 
once I started to process it, you know, I, again, I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew it was bad. I decided that I wanted to go home. So I ended up leaving college a few days before graduation and spent a day with my mom and my godmother and my father going to an oncologist in my hometown. And, you know, I'll never forget going into the appointment. We thought she had a type of bone cancer called multiple myeloma. And we're in the room. And I share this in my book, Grief is Love. My mom was laying on the examination table with one of those ridiculous paper shirts. And the doctor, Dr. Alvarez, instead of examining, you know, her spine or skeletal system in some way, he was touching her breasts. And as soon as he started to do that, I knew we might be in trouble. And at one point, he took my mom's hand and he put it on her left breast and said, can you feel that? And she said, yes. And as soon as she said, yes, I knew we were fucked. Because if she had lesions on her spine and a mass in her breast, you know, I knew just enough to know that that was stage four breast cancer, a death sentence. And so in that moment, you know, everything about my life changed. And I actually decided after going back to college and, you know, managing graduation with my family that I was going to take a year off and help my parents navigate this really complicated, scary health situation. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I first found out that my mom had cancer. So she had a she had a mammogram in February two thousand and five. Yes. yes, and it was normal. Hers were always a little weird. Usually, have to go back for follow up. I now think and have just really begun to grapple with the idea that racism killed my mother. Black woman constantly in and out of the hospital, constantly in and out of doctor's offices, doing everything she could to take care of herself as an already very sick person. She was very much on top of her health and her care and was speaking up for herself and nobody was listening. You know, everyone essentially said they thought it was in her head and it turned out it was cancer that had invaded her entire body. And the only reasonable explanation for why I think she wasn't being heard is the color of her skin and the level of her education. Barely graduated high school. You know, I think, I think if she were growing up today, she probably would have been diagnosed with, you know, some like learning disability and been able to get better supports. But this was the 70s. Initially, folks thought it was maybe something connected to her MS And once that was ruled out, we were just confused. But myself, my father, 
my godmother, you know, all of our family and friends, like everyone knew my mom to be a really tough person with a high tolerance for pain, you know, two kids, no drugs type thing, you know, like labored naturally both times and never complained about it. Um, and so when she was, you know, really struggling to just get out of bed, to move around the house, more wheelchair bound than usual, et cetera, we knew that something was wrong and it took someone who was known to us, you know, someone whose kid I did leadership retreats with and whatnot in high school to really see her and listen and figure out what was going on. You know, I ended up running into this guy, Dr. Fink, um, a few weeks after she was definitively diagnosed. I saw him at a graduation party and I just, I thanked him and he said, the day that he met with my parents and had to tell them that, you know, he found these lesions on my mom's spine, he said it was the worst day in his career to date. Clearly, he had a lot of empathy and compassion, and I think that made a big difference in terms of getting a clear diagnosis for her. I think it's really important for doctors, especially specialists, you know, whether it's oncologists, neurologists, et cetera, to really listen to people. You know, there are a lot of things wrong with the way that our healthcare system is structured. We know that there are these systemic inequalities and issues with the way in which healthcare is delivered to people. And at the end of the day, doctors are just human beings like myself and have a lot that they're having to deal with as well. You know, I, I have empathy for those who are in the medical profession, especially after these last two years. But I think it's just really important to take the time to listen to people and remember that, you know, everyone's health situation and everyone's health challenges are different and unique. And so, you know, if you can, if you can take the time to really hear what people are saying, even if, you know, maybe at first blush, it doesn't make sense or something doesn't add up, make sure that you're not putting people back into the world with serious medical problems because they have life or death consequences. When I left Harvard, I went back to my parents' house and lived in my purple-painted childhood bedroom for almost a full year. Um, it was miserable and often overwhelming, you know, just trying to get a handle on both of her diseases and helping to coordinate medical appointments. And, you know, initially she was in a drug trial. So, you know, helping to manage that process. I had, you know, this was long enough ago that you know, I had a binder, like a physical binder that I used that was color-coded with tabs to keep everything organized. You know, I wanted the house to be kept super clean so that she wasn't exposed to any additional germs. I obsessed over her diet. Like I basically did everything that I could to control the process and allow her to be as comfortable and healthy as possible. And by the time I moved out and took a job, you know, an hour and a half away in New York City and moved into my own apartment, she was in a stable place. You know, we always knew that her disease was treatable, but not curable. So the goal was stability and obviously also quality of life. 
And so, you know, when I left, she was in the best possible shape that she could have been for a woman with stage four cancer and multiple, multiple sclerosis. Um, and unfortunately over the following months, she just went downhill. You know, she tried a number of different drugs and treatments. You know, at one point she was doing the chemotherapy where you're there a couple of times a week for a few hours at a time. And it, was just devastating to witness. You know, I remember this one day my parents came down to the city to visit me and some of my girlfriends and just, you know, hang out with us for a day. And my mom pretty much always had longer hair. And I remember helping the two of them get into a cab to head back home and just seeing like wisps of her hair, like blowing out of her head and into the street in lower Manhattan and thinking like, this is the most horrifying, dehumanizing, depressing thing ever. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was really hard. And I, you know, when I left home, I realized I wanted to do something else to be helpful. You know, like I, I saw up close how, debilitating and painful and complicated and overwhelming cancer care and cancer treatment can be. And, you know, I was never very good at science or anything health related. So I knew I wasn't going to run off and try and get myself in medical school or become a social worker or something like that. Um, but I've always been really good at throwing parties and asking for things. And so I decided I would start throwing parties to raise money for breast cancer. And that grew into a national nonprofit that now has chapters all across the country and is a part of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. So for me, you know, especially me at that time, you know, in my early 20s, just kind of getting started in life, I needed to do something action-oriented as a way of making myself feel better about the whole situation. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the way everyone should process the grief that comes before death. But for me, I am, I'm an action oriented person. I am a controlling person. You know, I needed to have something else to throw myself into. So I ran a nonprofit on the side and during the day I worked in finance and I basically split my time between New York city and my parents' house in the suburbs until we got closer to the end. Um, so yeah. Um, my mom was able to live as comfortably as possible with the cancer and the multiple sclerosis for just about two years. Um, once she kind of hit that two-year point in June of 2007, that's when she started to decline more rapidly. You know, it felt like we were constantly having conversations about new treatments, different treatments, and pain management. She's not someone who responded well to opioids. So at one point, she had a methadone pump to help manage her pain. You know, it was, it was all very complicated and hard. And when we hit fall of 2007, in addition to everything else she was already dealing with on the health front, her compromised immunity had led to latent tuberculosis actually becoming active TB. And at that point, you know, I, I remember 
going into her room at the hospital and feeling like we have to be getting close to the end. You know, for me to have to leave work to get tested for TB um, was pretty, it was pretty jarring. And I, you know, again, being the controlling action-oriented person that I am, I reached out to a number of specialists. You know, my mom was being seen locally at home. She was also being seen by a fabulous breast cancer doctor at Sloan Kettering. I, because of my work with the cancer charity, was reaching out to other doctors and specialists just to see, you know, what, what were the other options. And I remember that fall making a call to an oncologist who had successfully treated one of my friend's moms and, you know, just had a long history of helping really complicated breast cancer cases. And so I called him and you know, I was on the banking platform, you know, right on Wall Street. And I went through my list of this is everything we've done. This is everything she've tried. She's tried. These are the results. This is what's happened with the TB infection, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I will never forget. He said to me, honestly, the best advice that I feel like I can give you right now is to support her when she's ready to stop treatment. And trying to keep it together long enough to get myself out of the bank before having a full-on meltdown was definitely a challenge. But I continue to have a ton of respect and gratitude for that doctor saying, like, you know, this is this is going to be it. Like, there isn't really anything left to do. And so a couple weeks later, when my mom said that, you know, she didn't want to undergo treatment anymore, I was prepared to support her in that decision. And it was, I mean, it was horrifying, um, but I believed based on all of the research and work that we'd done to that point, that it was absolutely the right thing. And by the time we stopped, you know, the cancer had spread to her brain. They assumed it was also in her lungs. And, you know, she was, she was in really bad shape. You know, by the time we hit Christmas in 2007, she was on oxygen. She had the methadone for pain management and she was no longer undergoing active treatment for her cancer. You know, we spent December and January just me encouraging my parents to really get all of their affairs in order, you know, doing the practical do not resuscitate, healthcare proxy, life insurance, will, et cetera, stuff. Because what I didn't want and what I prayed I wouldn't have to manage was a painful, slow decline where my father and I weren't on the same page with regard to what we should do for my mom. I spent my 25th birthday in a hospital room with my parents uh, signing as like a witness to a bunch of those legal documents. And at that point, the doctors gave her six months to a year, which I thought actually meant six months to a year. But I now realize that's just what doctors say when somebody could die any day. And uh, one day in February, 10 days after her 49th birthday, we were hanging out in the living room with my grandparents who had stopped by to visit and she was really not feeling well and she'd been pretty sick for the previous 24 hours and 
what I didn't know at the time, just being young and not knowing a lot about the health and also death, uh, is that her organs were like starting to shut down. Again, we woke up that Thursday, she wasn't feeling great. I talked to some of her doctors and uh, one person suggested that I try and get my hands on some weed and we just like get her super stoned because they were doing everything they could to reduce her pain and it just it just wasn't really working and so that afternoon you know I was like trying to help her with her walker like get to my parents bedroom and I told her about the weed and she started laughing and then she collapsed and I could barely hold her up like my anxiety during that period was out of control and I had lost 20 25 pounds and so as I was struggling to hold her up, she had a seizure and I laid her down on my parents' bedroom floor. And when I looked at her, I, at that point, I, I knew it was over. Like I actually thought she was already dead. Um, and paramedics came and I was very clear about my mother's wishes. And so they reaffirmed them, you know, like they said, we can try and work on her and bring her to the hospital, but there's a good chance she would die on the way. And my father and I, thank God, were 100% on the same page and said, absolutely not. And so she got to die at home, which was what she wanted. And she was gone within a couple of hours. When my mom first died, I felt like I needed to keep it together. You know, I, I totally bought into the strong black woman trope. My sister uh, suffers with bipolar disorder. And at that point in our lives, her disease had been really challenging for her to manage. And before my mother died, she had actually told me that she was even more worried about my father than she was worried about my sister. So I was then left worrying about both of them. And the week that my mom died, my dad and I, you know, we were in the same small house. Like, I don't know exactly how small the house is I grew up in, but like, it's tiny. And I don't know what he was doing most of the time. I had my spreadsheet from my practical conversations with my mom. You know, I knew the song she wanted for the funeral. I knew what she was going to wear. I knew who she wanted for pallbearers and like the Bible passage. You know, like I had all of that organized and ready to go. I have a crew of type A, really intense, like get shit done women who I'm friends with. So like it was me and my spreadsheet delegating and like managing a team, basically. You know, I was like CEO of what comes next, funeral planning, et cetera. I jumped into action with my crew and people did everything from designing the slideshow that I wanted to have at the funeral to buying me waterproof makeup at Sephora so that if I cried at the funeral, I still looked good. And even the church, oh my gosh, this is in the book because it just drove me so crazy at the time. The church sent designs for funeral programs for me to review. They were disgusting. Like they were so hideous. They were all some version of like Christian chic is what I came to call it. You know, like the soaring eagle 
misty mountaintop nonsense. And I was like, no, we will not have that. Like that does not align with my vision for this event. Uh, and so one of my girlfriends designed custom funeral programs because obviously that's what my mom needed. And what I didn't think of, you know, I'm like, oh, solution done. Like my girls have it under control. I never thought about how those custom programs were going to be printed until I walked into a hotel room where a bunch of them were staying and they had borrowed a printer from Staples to print and assemble the funeral programs and were planning to return said printer after the funeral. So like I I had my people, I was in my get shit done mode, I was good. And I had promised my mom I would be just fine after she died. So to me, that meant taking care of all of these logistics and then getting back to my life in New York, my job, you know, on Wall Street and my nonprofit. And so like, that's what I focused on, but I did not... I did not give myself space to process the enormity of what had happened. I don't know that I could have processed it, but I really didn't, I didn't give myself room to process it. Um, I was back in New York City two weeks after my mom died. I was back at work two weeks after we buried her. And what ended up happening, because I didn't give myself space to really deal with all of those feelings and emotions every morning when I would go to work I would get off at the Wall Street four or five stop and right as I would start to walk up the stairs onto Broadway you know going to my office building I would start having a massive panic attack I would just barely like make it through the doors get on the elevator ride down to the basement where there was a training center that I knew was empty. And that's where I would have like a complete meltdown every morning for months. And one of my colleagues was also one of my best friends. So every morning I would text or email her and she would come downstairs with a soy latte, a cookie and a Xanax. And that's how I got through my return to work. And I somehow thought that was like normal and okay. As I became more of an adult and learned about feelings and the importance of processing them and, you know, the ways in which unexpressed emotions manifest as anxiety, I realized when my husband and I lost a much-wanted pregnancy in 2019 that I could not do that again. And so I gave myself room to grieve that loss out loud and as I examined, you know, why I could behave so differently in 2019 versus 2008, I've come to realize that grief requires safety. Like you can't grieve and give yourself space to be vulnerable and fall apart if you don't feel safe and supported. And by the time 2019 rolled around, I owned my own business. You know, I'd worked in the White House on Wall Street. I was married. We own our home. You know, we do pretty well financially. Like I was about as safe as a black woman can be in America, according to the standards of, you know, whiteness and capitalism. And so I felt more comfortable talking about what had happened to me because I didn't, I didn't feel like I had as much to be afraid of or as much to lose as I felt like I did when I was 25 in my first job, 
like barely making ends meet and, you know, not being supported emotionally, like the way I am now. And I think it's really important when we think about grief and the resources that people need in order to heal and learn how to live with loss, that those resources aren't a privilege, you know, that, that we all do the work to ensure that those resources are distributed equitably. For people who are actively grieving right now, I think it is very important to talk about it, to give yourself space to grieve, to find the people who will support you. And if they don't exist within your immediate network to access resources and other networks like the Dinner Party is a great resource for younger people in particular who are grieving. Um, Modern Loss is also a great online community. Do not try to hide your grief and the extent of your pain because it doesn't work. That's what I've learned at this point. If you are struggling and you want support, like you have to share what you're experiencing in order to get support or at least some of what you're experiencing because otherwise people aren't going to know how to help you. The book that you've written, Grief is Love, draws on both your experience with your mom and the um, experience you had with infertility and losing, you know, a much wanted pregnancy in 2019. How are those intertwined? I would say for me, the connection between the two losses, you know, I realized when we lost our pregnancy that you really don't get over these foundational losses that happen in your life. You know, whether it's mother, father, sister, brother, child, spouse, you know, the people who are core to who you are as a person, when they are no longer here, it leaves a profound and lasting impact on you. You know, when we lost our pregnancy, you know, I was on the floor of our bathroom, like too sick to move at one point, you know, trying to like make myself small enough to fit on the bath mat. And all I wanted was my mom, who'd been dead for over a decade. And that's when I was like, oh shit, like this, this isn't something that you can get over. Like you just have to figure out how you're going to live with it. And what that looks like can change day to day, month to month, year to year. But being honest about what you need in order to live with the traumatic, challenging, et cetera, things that have happened to you is critically important. You helped, you know, President Obama with his My Brother's Keeper, right? The, the yeah. program. What do you think your mom would have to say about all of these things that you've achieved? Oh, she's so proud. Like, cheesy proud. 100% <laughs> confident. You know what I mean? Like, I, like, I, knowing her and, like, how proud she was of the things that I achieved during the time she was on this earth. Like, I know her head is, like, exploding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I know, I know she's super proud and people tell me that all the time and I appreciate it, but I'm like, that's one thing I'm confident of. My favorite memory of my mom, and this is actually in the book, just this moment from childhood that I'm sure happened on multiple occasions that plays over and over in my head where she is sitting on the edge of the pool at this club that existed back in the day for IBM employees and their kids. And I sit on her feet and hold her hands and like she kicks her legs and then let's go. And I go flying through the air into the water 
Um, and that is, that is one of my most vivid and earliest childhood memories with her. This episode has so much in it. And one of the things that stood out to me was the supporting of a loved one when they're ready to stop treatment. When he's diagnosed with cancer, we really want to treat them. We really want to fight it. We really want to overcome it. But sometimes the best management, the best care, and the best treatment for the person is not cancer-directed therapy anymore. It's very hard for the patient to get to that point. It's also hard for the family members to get to that point. And in Marissa's story with her mom, Lisa, the doctor had told her early on to support her mom when she is ready to stop treatment. So I think you're absolutely right. Because I was speaking with someone recently, and what I said is we cheer a lot in oncology when we are able to cure people, but being able to see someone through the process of dying in a dignified and respect, you know, in a dignified fashion on their own terms, that is also a victory. So many of us on the, you know, oncology side, so many family members, as you said, really want to get that cure. And unfortunately, oftentimes we don't. And I think there's a transparency that's needed when it's time to stop treatment, when it's time to now more so focus on making someone have minimal pain, making sure that they are living out their last days as they want to. Um, I, I agree with you that that was one of the best things that her doctor could have done was to prepare Marissa for this moment where her mother would choose to not continue with care. And instead of there being a clash, um, Marissa and her family being able to understand that, you know, we are now transitioning to another phase of care, which is not about, you know, getting a cure. It's not about being given chemo. It's not about giving, being given immunotherapy. It's about focusing on death in a dignified manner, according to your terms. So I, I, I wish more of those conversations would happen in oncology. Agreed. And this should happen early on. So the other thing that really jumped out in our conversation was when she said, I'm coming to terms with the fact that racism played a role in killing my mother. That was a gut punch. I'm sure for her when she, it dawned on her. And for me, when she said it, because the fact of the matter is that racism plays a role. I'm sure it's a very controversial subject. Um, 
But I think in the last two years, we've been talking a lot about structural racism and thinking about this woman who, yes, she had chronic diseases. Uh, Yes, she had a high school education, but she had been part of the medical ecosystem um, for long enough that she was doing her best to talk to her doctors, to communicate, this is what I'm feeling and it's different and it's not okay. And it, again, it's a gut punch to know that she was seeking care and honestly not being listened to. And the fact that as a black woman, yes, her case may not have been taken as um, seriously as other people's. It's something that we have to confront and and find ways of of rectifying. And she did do something that I like to encourage people to do, which is to persist. When you go with a complaint to your doctor and you feel that it wasn't fully addressed or it left without an understanding of what's going on, you persist. You keep going back or you go to a different doctor. It's, it's tough because sometimes you're made to feel that you're making a big deal out of nothing. Not every abdominal pain, not every discomfort is cancer. However, there are just too many cases whereby someone presents with something. And in a lot of cases, I see this more so in Black and underrepresented minorities, where you present with something and it gets... Uh, it doesn't get addressed or evaluated fully. And you, you leave with a feeling that I know my body, this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like what they're telling me persists. Anything that, till you get an answer, till someone fully evaluates you. Fortunately, in the case of Maurice's mom, it wasn't until a family friend who was not even a specialist in that was supposed to be treating what she was doing committed himself to it. It wasn't until then that she was diagnosed, which was unfortunate. Exactly. It, it, it shouldn't be that you have a family friend who will finally listen to you and take your concerns seriously before you get diagnosed. The onus should not be on patients um, because people have varying uh, levels of health literacy you know, people have varying levels of comfort advocating for themselves or skill advocating for themselves. So the onus shouldn't be on patients. And again, I, I encourage any of the oncologists who are out there to, to engage in ways to um, improve equity. It, it's not by accident that we have these uh, health inequities. Uh, for instance, when we look at the um, annual report from the American Cancer Society, we see that women who have breast cancer, the overall survival rate for breast cancer between 2010 and 2016 was 91% for white women, and it falls to 82% for Black women. And that's the same story if you look at a number of different cancers. And it should not be 
that way. There are a number of things that contribute to that, you know, um, lack of insurance. Again, we've said structural racism, bias. Um, There's so many things. And I think it's up to each and every single one of us to do our part to make sure that we are mitigating, you know, the factors that could lead to these kinds of inequities and outcome. And I encourage everyone to, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, uh, Conquer Cancer has a great podcast with a recent episode featuring Dr. Karen Winkfield and Dr. Don Dizon, and it's called A Conversation About Race and Cancer Care. So feel free to check that out. We'll link that in the show notes. Um, But it's really an issue that we have to grapple with and, and come up with solutions for. While there are many issues relating to the disparities we see in cancer care, one thing that you can do as an individual is be a champion for your health. Advocate for yourself fiercely and strongly. It's your help. And the person that it should matter the most to is you. So be the champion of your health. That's one thing that you can do. Yeah, so many thanks again to Marissa for joining us to share this heart-wrenching but beautiful story about her mom and their experience dealing with her mom's cancer. We want to encourage everyone to order Grief is Love. It's available in your uh, neighborhood bookstore as well as all the usual booksellers. So please pick up a copy or multiple copies, preferably, and uh, show Marissa your support. For more information about our podcasts, visit our website, www.theonconcdocs.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple. This podcast was produced by Steve A. Williams. Again, I am Dr. Finifolu Balogun. And I am Dr. Onyine Balogun. And, and we, we are, are the Ankh Docs. Docs.